Welcome listeners out there um, to another episode of our podcast called Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, As you know, you can't donate to this podcast, but you can leave a review. And if you feel so inspired to do that, sure appreciate that at iTunes or wherever you listen. Many of you have done that. And it helps connect more listeners to the amazing guests that bravely come on this platform and share their stories. And we have another one today. I'm Cassidy Lundgren. Welcome to the podcast, Cassidy. Thank you so much. Cassidy is joining us via Zoom from her home in Phoenix. Um, she's going to talk about her journey with mental health, especially scrupulosity. And um, she's um, in her mid-40s. As I mentioned, she lives in Phoenix. She's a married mom of four kids, been married over 20 years, active LDS, grew up in Houston. My wife grew up in Houston, but not quite the same spot. So we have a common connection to Houston, a city that we love. Um, as I've read through Cassidy's outline, I've kind of gotten pretty tenderhearted for Cassidy because she's been on a long road for a long time working with um, her mental health, largely undiagnosed um, for much of this journey and turning to sort of spiritual tools, which are a good thing. But often the spiritual tools we turn to don't solve mental health issues. Those are um, usually two different roads. Um, mental health tools solve mental health issues and uh, mental health isn't a spiritual weakness. Although I think the role of the atonement to heal and bring hope and perspective is helpful. Um, if so, this podcast is, um, we'll talk about scrupulosity, but it'll be a little broader than that. And I asked Cassidy before we went live, you know, why you'd like to do this. And she may mention this, but she said, I really want people to know about scrupulosity, people that are walking this road, parents, leaders, friends, so that we know what it is, we can diagnose it and help people. Um, Often people that are correctly diagnosed um, don't have a really long journey to solve this. Um, They can find healing pretty quickly. So that's one of the, I guess, I don't know, one of the benefits of being correctly diagnosed with a really difficult mental health issue. Is that okay, Cassidy, for an introduction? That's perfect. Yeah, that's great. So um, I'll just turn it over to you to tell your story. I kind of frame this up, listeners. It's like Cassidy and I going to lunch and Cassidy telling me her story. So you're just invited to lunch um, <laughs> as the two of us visit. So go ahead, Cassidy. Okay, here goes. Um, so I grew up in a semi-active home. My mom was active and my dad wasn't most of my childhood. Um, I, by the time I had gotten to junior high, I had decided that I didn't like church. I wanted to be cool and church didn't seem very cool and, you know, kind of some typical teenage ideas and behaviors. But then I hadn't experienced my high school, my freshman year in high school where I changed. It was a very dramatic and like I have the exact date where I decided I was going to commit to the gospel and change my trajectory and be all in. Um, And for most, for most of my life, I guess I should say that worked really well. And it brought a lot of happiness and joy and fun. And it just really changed my life for the better. But that was also when I started to obsess about being morally and spiritually perfect. Um, I would think just constantly, always in the back of my head, I was always thinking, am I being good enough? Am I being nice enough? Am I being kind enough and serving enough and having enough faith? And what does God think of me? I always felt like God was mad at me and frustrated with me because I wasn't living up to his expectations. Um, And I was a good girl. I wasn't doing bad things, you know, as far as like what we normally think of as bad things. Um, So it wasn't like there were obvious things that God would have said, well, you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, I was living all of, quote unquote, the commandments. Um, I just always felt like I was a bad person and I always felt guilty. I even felt guilty if I didn't finish my homework, like God was mad at me for not finishing my homework. Um, so about this same time in high school, I started to get sad all the time. I was sad and 
I actually had a very happy life um, on the outside. I people wouldn't have guessed this. I was very gregarious, had lots of friends. I dated a lot. I had a lot of extracurricular activities. I got a lot of accolades, got good grades. My family ended up getting sealed when I was in high school. So it was a great time for my family. Like there wasn't anything that should have made me sad. And yet I would come home and cry all the time. Um, Every day, all the time after school, I would be crying almost. And I would kind of go through the motions of life a lot of times and just felt kind of like giving up, like, what's the point? And I would talk to my mom about this and kind of saying, help, I don't know what to do. I need, I need guidance. And you have to remember back then, depression wasn't as widely understood, widely talked about, widely accepted. So we did know a little bit about depression because my dad had been diagnosed with depression and he was taking medicine for that. So in some ways, we maybe would have been more well-equipped than the layman to know that I had depression. But my dad's depression showed in he would get angry, he would withdraw. and. I didn't get angry. I just got sad and I didn't withdraw. I like reached out to people and I was still very social and such. And so in our, you know, kind of inexperienced brains, my mom and I just thought, well, it must not be depression, you know, because depression is what my dad was. And again, this was a long time ago. Now I think we would listen to a teenager who's crying all the time and sad and wants to give up and going through the motions and know that's depression. But this was a long time ago and um, we didn't have the tools and understanding we have now. So a lot of my journal entries, when I look back at them, they talk about how I'm so sad, but I think if I just have more faith, then God will help me be happy. Or I'm so sad, I'm crying all the time, but if I just serve more, I think that's my answer. I'm sad, but if I just think about God more, then that's the answer. It was always religious, spiritually based, what I thought were the answers. And I was always beating myself up and always thinking I needed to just try harder and then God would help me. Um, I somehow made it through high school and then got to BYU my freshman year. And again, similar as high school, I had so much fun on the outside, hanging out with friends all the time, going on dates, getting good grades. But inside, I was dying. I was so sad and um, I felt so alone and so lost. And I think it's important to point out that life events, life, big life changes is usually when mental health issues are either triggered or exacerbated. And so it makes sense, you know, that I would get more depressed when I made this big life change. So when I got home that summer, I told my mom, you know, she saw me and she was like, okay, this, we got to do something about this. And so we went to a psychiatrist and they did diagnose me with depression, started me on medicine Um, and took a few different types to kind of figure it out. That's the hard part with antidepressants is it takes a few to finally know what works for you. It takes time to get in your system. Anyway, so I dealt with all of that. But for the most part, I seem things seem to be going better. Then we get my sophomore year, we get to my, actually that's when Titanic came out and I, again, didn't know it at the time. I just thought I was this romantic, passionate person. But I would cry about Titanic constantly. I would listen to the music. I would drive in the mountains and sob for hours. I would listen in my room. I would go play the piano, um, play the songs on the piano and sob. And now I'm able to understand that was because I was still depressed. At the time, I think my roommates thought I was a little wacko. Um, but I was able to just, I just felt so passionately about the sad story and the music and the history and all of that. Um, Then we get, so I'm, this whole time I'm taking medicine on and off. Sometimes I'm taking it and then sometimes I'm not. And I just, because I felt weak. I felt like so many people do about if they're diagnosed, I felt like 
I should be stronger than this. And maybe I need it as a little crutch for a time, but eventually I'll get strong enough that I don't need it. And so I was taking it for a few months and then thinking, oh, now I'm strong enough. And again, I would always add in that spiritual component, like I'm closer to the Lord now, or I feel like I'm having more faith, so I don't need medicine. So I would be on and off it, which if anyone knows, that means your mood and your depression is on and off too. You know, it basically correlates with how well you take the medicine. Um, so then we get to my next, uh, my next year was my junior year. And after that summer, I sold books with some friends in rural Wisconsin. And that I didn't realize at the time, but triggered some past memories that caused me to get panicky and being out in the middle of nowhere had to do with some some things, things in my past. And so, but at the time, I didn't know what was going on. I just felt this fear all the time. And I started to have panic attacks. Um, and it was really so hard for me. So I ended up quitting after six weeks and driving home. And I remember driving home, having to pull over on the side of the road because I was so panicky. I couldn't even drive. And it was this fear that just escalated. And I didn't know what panic attacks were at the time. I just kind of thought I was going crazy. I didn't know what was going on. So I get back home and things kind of stabilize. I'm feeling better. Then I meet my now husband, Grant, and we end up getting engaged. And that, again, we talk about life changes. That just lit my insides on fire. I was so petrified all the time that I was making a mistake, that how did I know we were compatible? How did I know he was the one? How did I know what God wanted me to do? What if we wouldn't have a good life? All these things that I think are normal for a lot of people when they get engaged, but they don't get to the unhealthy, all-consuming, filled with terror feelings that I that happened to me. And it got to where I was having panic attacks weekly. Um, I remember being in a French class and just gripping my desk, trying to keep me from running out of the room screaming. Like it just was so heightened all the time. And it's sad. People talk about their engagements as some of the best time in their life. And it definitely was not for me. Um, but I, was able to get through it. I had a couple of spiritual experiences and got through it, was able to get married. But then you look at that summer and you can tell looking back again, I didn't know at the time, but my psyche was just sick. Um, I was dropping things all the time. I was just jittery all the time. And I remember we watched a movie about World War II and I just knew I knew another world war was around the corner and that I was going to have to live through things that prison camp survivors lived through and that I was, God was going to ask me to suffer. I remember thinking the second coming was coming and I was going to have to live through and suffer through all these horrendous things because God wanted me to. The weirdest one is I, we watched a movie, my husband and I about dinosaurs. It wasn't Jurassic Park. I don't remember what it was, but some movie and I became convinced that dinosaur God was going to bring back dinosaurs to the earth as part of like fulfilling the earth or something weird. And we were going to have to live with dinosaurs again and fight with them, you know, fight them off and things like that. So clearly I'm a little unhinged. Like that is not normal thinking. Um, but it felt so real and true to me. So then we get to that fall after I got married and I was in Relief Society and that was back when we would read in those books, the words of the prophets and like all of their words and compilations. And we were reading Joseph F. Smith and I read a line in there about his wives, plural. And for some reason, that thought of polygamy completely it was like the the earth shifted. It was like all of a sudden I was living in this alternate universe. And I started thinking God's going to make me 
um, live through polygamy. And I have to say, on side note, my husband is not anyone who would condone this or be domineering or be anything but so loving and supportive. So it had nothing to do with my husband. It was a very spiritual illness um, and mental. And so I just was convinced that we were going to have to live through polygamy again. And if not in this life, then in the celestial kingdom and that I would be dominated over, I would lose my individuality and this all consuming fear and terror just inhabited my being. Like it was there all the time. There was not one second. It wasn't there. And it literally felt like someone was screaming inside my head. It was sheer pain. Um, I never ate. I lost 25 pounds in two months. I never slept. I tried to go to a couple leaders and to the scriptures and to the temple. But each of those things filled me with more fear. And I would get completely overcome with fear when I would read the scriptures, when I would go to the temple, when I would talk to different leaders. So it almost felt like I didn't know where to go. I felt so alone and so lost and so scared. Um, again, my husband was very supportive there. He had no idea what was going on with me. He had no background in mental health or any of that. And with his family, none of that. And so it was very, very confusing for him and very hard, but he was so supportive and would just hold me while I cried and would just try to love me. Again, I thought this all had to do with faith. I had no idea this was a mental illness. And I just thought I'm not having enough faith to do God's will. I have to believe that he's in charge and that his will is right. And he wants me to suffer and that's okay. Um, then one day I was on campus and I was talking with a friend who I knew since high school and she knew of my depression diagnosis. And so she, I was, I wasn't going into too much detail, but I did tell her, you know, I was really struggling and I was, you know, not sleeping or eating. And she said, do you think this has something to do with your depression? And I was like, no, like that. First of all, depression felt sad. This was terror filling, but also again, I thought it was faith. I thought this is completely spiritual. It has nothing to do with like a mental disorder, but she got me thinking and I was so desperate for any relief that I was like, I I'll do anything. So I went in to a doctor on campus and explained my, you know, kind of what was going on. And they were like, uh, yeah, you know, you definitely need some help. And they prescribed antidepressants. And after about a month on the antidepressants, it was like the screaming stopped. Like I felt rational. The earth like got back on its axis, like things got normal again. And I vowed I would never get off medicine again. And that my brain just had a disease, just like if I had cancer, if I had um, heart disease or something like that. And I really started to feel like just completely okay with it, that this was something I needed for the health of my body. Um, so the other thing that really helped was that he offered the doctor offered to set me up with a therapist on campus. So I went to the therapist and that was when I was diagnosed with OCD and scrupulosity. And that really surprised me. I didn't know. I thought OCD was you're really clean. You're really orderly. You're afraid of germs. I didn't know there was a mental OCD and a mental component to it. And, um, that that's what was going on with me, that I had these insane obsessions and then these compulsions to overanalyze and overthink and try and beat myself up and all of that. And then she explained that scrupulosity was a form of OCD that focuses on religious and spiritual matters in your obsessions and how you always feel guilty and, and such. And so I, she had, was doing an OCD class 
on like a group therapy class on campus. So I went to that and really, it really, really helped because I saw other people's crazy thoughts and they were obviously crazy to me. I remember one girl felt like she couldn't do well on a test unless her mom put her name on a prayer roll. I was like, what? You know, that's weird. (laughs) But if her thoughts are crazy, then maybe my thoughts were crazy too. And it started to real, I started to realize that I couldn't, not only didn't have to, but couldn't believe everything that I thought. And so it helped me to disassociate myself from my thoughts and sort of evaluate them and not take them at face value. And especially that fear to realize that that was a sickness and part of a disease. And so if I would ever feel that to sort of step away and not, not delve into it or try to fix it or try to make it go away, but just sort of disassociate, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing that really helped me was this book called The Doubting Disease. Um, it is by Joseph W. Ciarochi, I think is how you say it. And that was amazing for me. It explained all these people throughout history who like they think Martin Luther had had scrupulosity. They there's all these people throughout history that they think they can identify as yes, that looks like scrupulosity. And it just again made it more valid and more real. And it was like I identified with these people. And then there's also um, examples and exercises in the book to help you overcome it. So that really, really, really helped me. Um, I decided at this time, my testimony was really struggling because everything I'd been taught to believe in had caused me hell, basically. And so I was really struggling, but I couldn't give up. I know people who have struggled with some of this stuff and they just walk away. And for some reason, I don't know why I couldn't. Um, So I kind of made a deal with God and said, I can't read my scriptures. I can't go to the temple, but I will show you that I am trying to figure this out by still going to church. I'll still go to church and I'll still do my callings. And I still prayed, but I am not going to feel any pressure to read my scriptures. I'm not going to feel any pressure to go to the temple. I'm not going to feel any pressure to be perfect, to try harder. I'm just going to hang on. And so anytime that people would talk about things like that in church, you know, being perfect, trying harder, pushing yourself, making changes to make yourself better, you know, a lot of times that would sort of ignite that fear in me again and that feeling. And I learned to either just walk out of the class or walk out of, you know, sacrament meeting or whatever, or I learned that that's not for me at this time. Just like if I had the flu, I wouldn't expect myself to be going to the temple. Uh, It was the same thing. I was sick and I was recovering and I couldn't do that, nor should I be expected to do that right now. And so that helped me a lot to, again, disassociate with those feelings and those thoughts and those fears. Um, And it was like that for a few years. And then slowly I felt like I started to get healthier and I was able to feel peace and actually get to know God for real instead of this being that I sort of conjured up in my brain and through a lens of mental illness, I started to have these spiritual experiences where I knew that he was real and I knew how much he loved me and that none of those feelings that I felt were from him, none of them. And so if I ever felt those feelings come up in church, I knew that automatically it wasn't God because I had gotten to know God and that wasn't how he was. Um, So through the years, it took about 10 years. And then I finally felt like I could start going to the temple. I had an experience that really helped me and I was able to start going to the temple, reading my scriptures and kind of putting a few pressures on me again. But I am much better about being realistic, being 
kind to myself, um, self-soothing. If I feel any of those things, you know, just watching a show, doing some crafts, which always soothes me or something artistic. Um, and that has really helped. And to the point to where I don't really deal with the scrupulosity very much anymore. And I am so grateful for that since it really overtook my life for a long time and, um, caused me such severe pain. Um, what has affected me more is my depression that I have had to deal with a lot. It was hard for me to be a stay at home mom and I would get depressed easily and would there were many days when I would just stay in bed and again I would think of it as I had the flu you know and it was just it was okay I tried I still would beat myself up a little bit but I tried not to beat myself up for not functioning and for letting my kids watch shows and such um on those days because it again it was like I was sick and I would always come out of it and be able to function again and be a mom and um my OCD goes in different ways as through the years. And this is going to sound silly, but the biggest way has been through decorating my house. And it sounds so trivial and ridiculous, but OCD can manifest itself in so many different ways. And so I would get to where I was thinking about decorating my house, not cleaning my house. I'm actually not overly clean, but decorating my house and it needed to be perfect. And I would compulsively think about it and analyze it and go buy things and redo it. And, and to the point where I wouldn't sleep about it and I would cry about it. And like, it was, it was painful. And so I know it sounds silly, but OCD in whatever form it takes is painful. Um, the other ways that it has sort of shown itself is in my, like I will get really obsessed with doing a a new artistic endeavor. I do all sorts of new things and I'll kind of become obsessed and compulsively finish it. And then I'm on to the next thing. And so that is, it hasn't caused me pain. It's like I'm crying about it, but it just kind of shows that it comes from that OCD place in my brain. Um, The other thing that has been painful is body image and that definitely is an OCD issue. And I would obsess over being thin enough. And this has happened since I was young. And my compulsion was to constantly check, check mirrors, check windows, check myself compared to other people in the room, other women, celebrities, and then beat myself up because I wasn't thin enough. And um, I would talk about or I, and so a lot of times I would focus on like well, in high school, I think, I don't think I was anorexic, but I was close. Um, then through the years I've kind of battled with what was healthy with food. And then now I'm at a point where some, I generally am okay with it, but, um, I have, I have days that are hard, but right now I'm doing intermittent fasting and that has really helped me because I feel like I, I'm in control of something and I can, cause I had a hard time controlling my diet, but this way I'm in control of, I kind of can eat what I want to during the hours that I'm not fasting, but then I'm controlling by not eating some of the time. And so therefore my thoughts aren't as out of control. I kind of am in control of something. So my thoughts are more in control. There's, there's just a, a weird correlation there. So that has really helped me. Um, then lastly, the thing that's helped me mostly with my OCD and my depression has been starting a small business with my friend. It's an interior design business and it has just been amazing for me. I get out of the house, I get dressed, I have creative endeavors that I'm, you know, doing and pursuing and I'm able to feel autonomous. I'm able to feel powerful. Like I'm, you know, doing some good things. I'm meeting people and it just has helped me tremendously. I don't think I've been depressed in years. And then also the OCD, it helps because I'm, you know, decorating other people's homes and sort of getting that out of my system a little bit. So it helps with the OCD. So that's kind of my story. Um, I don't know what else there is. It's mostly, I feel like right now I'm in a good place and I'm kind of in control of a lot of it. So Cassidy, on behalf of our listeners, thanks for your courage to share your story. Um, you got through a lot of years in a pretty succinct way. 
Um, yeah. you, have a gift, <laughs> you have a gift of communicating, but I wrote down a lot of things and I'd like to circle back. But the first thought is thank you for telling your story. Mm-hmm. And thank you for being so honest and vulnerable and real and authentic. And I would guess there are listeners that are hearing parts of your story for the first time, they're saying, that's me and I'm not alone. And and where you are in your 40s, given where you've been, gives other people hope. Yeah. And I hope, really hope so. So um, do you, you know, now that you've kind of have a long view of this road, I'd like to go back to your younger selves. So I'm going to go back to your high school self. And yeah. do you have any idea what caused you to think God was mad at you? Do you, what? As you look back, how did you come to that conclusion? Um, I think there were some things in my history that made me feel that way. Some leaders that made me feel that they were mad at me. And so I think I projected that onto God. That makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. uh, do you, how do you feel about God now? I... I mean, this sounds trite, but I love him. <laughs> he has changed my world and loves me beyond what I can comprehend. I love that. And that's my feeling about who God is. And I guess I think that younger people in particular, um, the adults in their life, particularly the male adults in their life, may help them formulate feelings about God, who's a male adult. Um, just to God. Yeah. And so if you if we have sometimes the role models we have in mortality as especially when we're young, formulate how we feel about God. But I whether we have good role models or not, I believe in the God you just talked about, a God that loves us and is not mad at us and is supportive of us. I what would you you know, this is thirty years removed from your high school years roughly. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not maybe not quite that long, but well, just talk to your talk to your high school self. You've kind of done that, but if you could talk to Cassidy and I don't know if you were in still in the Houston area where you're living, but talk to that person right now. I would tell her, first of all, that there's hope and that it won't always feel like this, and that you can get to a place of peace and love and happiness and that it's going to be a little rough journey, but you will come out a stronger, more understanding and empathetic person in the end and it'll be worth it. Love that. Um, I love you journal entering. It sounds like um, you, I think this is a BYU at this point where you're journal entering. Is that right? Um, I think when I spoke about my journal. I think I was still in high school, still but I have school. journal entries from maybe I talked about, I don't remember when I was, where I was talking about because I, I journaled in, at BYU too, and definitely have the same themes throughout them. And a lot of your story and journal entries sort of talk about connecting, being sad, um, not being perfect as a, you know, as a spiritual weakness. I needed to have more faith. Where did that how did that linkage come in your brain, do you think? So I think I felt a lot of pressure. I think two. there were two reasons. One, I felt a lot of pressure um, growing up to be good at everything. And so it was kind of an outward show. Um, and... So I projected that onto religion as well. I needed to be the perfect example of everything to be a good person, to be who I was because I was good. I was supposed to be good at everything. So I'm supposed to be good at religion too, or, you know, good spiritually. Um, The other thing is I had around the same time, I had a very unhealthy relationship with a boy that he was the state president's son. and. Like it was so odd. I don't even know if I can say he was a boyfriend, but he kind of was. Um, And we both kind of like to delve into deep doctrine, deep ideas. We like to, you know, be artistic. And, and he was always talking to me about needing to try harder. 
And I don't even remember what I was supposed to be trying harder at. I just remember there was that theme always in our relationship is I needed to try harder. And he was this spiritual authority to me because, you know, my dad wasn't active at that time. And I grew up without, you know, this male authority in the church. And it felt like whatever he said was kind of mixed with what God was saying in this weird weird way. So like I said, it was very dysfunctional and unhealthy. Um, and I think it kind of linked some ideas in my head that stayed with me. Not, mm-hmm. And I don't blame him. He was just a teenage boy trying to figure life out too. You know what I mean? But it just was not, it was an unfortunate circumstance. Yeah. I love the way you can go back and connect the dots. And I recognize listeners and I've talked about this, people that have um, spiritual OCD or scrupulosity. Some of these um, innocent phrases we share in our culture about, you know, not just obedience, but perfect obedience. Um, we've, I've heard talks about a sin resistant generation. I've heard talks about, you know, another version of obedience, not perfect obedience, but another one and strict obedience. And I recognize for some personalities without OCD, those are healthy sort of motivators to want to do better. But right. for there's a lot of really committed, wonderful people out there, especially younger people, that 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 circles in their OCD like it did for you in a very unhealthy way. Exactly. And is just the opposite thing, perhaps, that we should be sharing with youth and um, or that our heavenly parents would want someone with OCD to feel because it just becomes this overwhelming, unreachable. Um, objective and then there's just kind of ongoing comments about self-improvement spiritual self-improvement and so then people like cassidy turn to spiritual tools to solve a mental health issue which is just sort of this unsustainable cycle that (laughs) causes you to feel how you feel including some that feel suicided suicidal thoughts are complaining contemplating suicide is the only way out of this vortex and so it's just yeah. a really tough place to be, especially when people around you may not, including yourself, know what's going on. So I, I just would invite us to be sensitive, you know, to um, just people that have OCD as we're inviting each other um, to do better and even talk about OCD in our wards, families, and councils. As you look back to these BYU years or high school years, you've kind of talked about depression and OCD. You feel like you had depression still in your high school years and your college years and OCD? Or, this is a hard question. I'm not a therapist. Do you think the one sort of fed the other, one fed the other? Is there a way to, just for listeners who are trying to figure out, is this depression? Because at times you don't really, you recognize my dad's depressed, but I don't fit that model. But other times you do sort of say, I do have some depression. Any thoughts on just linking those or separating those for listeners? Um, Again, I'm not a therapist either, so I don't know if this is accurate exactly, but I feel like I had both and that they did feed each other. A lot of times, because OCD is a form of anxiety, and most times if you have anxiety, you also have depression or vice versa. A lot of times they go hand in hand. And so I think mine was just sort of linked. Um, the depression ended up being stronger at once I kind of got through the scrupulosity because the depression lingered and I didn't feel like the scrupulosity did. So I still had depression. It wasn't like it, the depression was only caused because of my scrupulosity. Um, I still had that even after all of my, you know, religious sort of compulsions and all of that went away. So I think I had both. If that, I hope that helped. It does help. And I don't know if this is factual, but the people I've had on the podcast, including our own son, our youngest son that had scrupulosity, a lot of people have felt once they got diagnosed and got the right tools, um, to to work through scrupulosity, it was a sh- it's it's something that people can put behind them. The exposure yeah. thoughts therapy. So depression can be a longer road, and it yes. sounds like you're doing well. So that's one of the things that gives me hope 
for people that have undiagnosed OCD and scrupulosity that there is a shorter path um, to put this behind them. Any thoughts on that, Cassidy? I absolutely agree. That was the way it was for me. It sort of felt like once I was able to name what was going on in me and, and to separate it from truth in my head, I was it. Just that alone helped me, helped it subside and helped me sort of gain control again. Um, so it, I do feel like the right tools, the right understanding really can, it's again, like you said, much quicker than depression. Depression can affect you in through years and years and multiple different situations. But this is kind of a specific situation that I think with the right tools, again, can be helped, like you said, very, fairly quickly. I thought you were so honest with some of the examples that came into your life, like World War II, the second coming dinosaurs. Um, I thought you were really honest about polygamy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, it is embarrassing to talk about, especially the dinosaurs. I mean, I was totally crazy, but I'm, uh, I'm hoping being honest about that helps other people. Yeah, I just think um, those are some things no one shared with me, but they certainly fit under the umbrella of OCD and where you hear something and the oh. Titanic and crying all the time. And you even described the word unhinged. Um, yeah. And then, you know, screaming inside of your head, pounding your head in the shower, panic attacks. So um, tried to read the scriptures, but they were terror filled. So this this segment is really brave of you. Um, oh, thank you. And I just, I think our hearts go out to people like you that are in a really tough spot. Obviously, you didn't, there's no backstory. You didn't do any, I think you know this, but at the time, I hope you knew it, that this is not anything you did. Um, I think culturally, sometimes we think when these sort of things are happening, that I need to turn to increase religious behaviors to solve this. And that can, and that can not often, and if, if you'd, turn to increase religious behaviors and they don't improve the situation, then it just makes you feel more broken and yes. wondering where God is and why isn't he answering my prayer. And I'm so broken that even though I've whatever increased my religious behaviors by this measure in this many areas, and I'm still in this spot, it, it puts you in a pretty, can put you in a pretty dark spot. And makes you want to walk away from religion. Yeah. I love your courage to do church on your own terms. I love your courage to say, I am not going to go to the temple and I am not going to read scriptures for a period of time, but I am going to go to church and keep my calling. And there's no church talk that's ever given somebody permission to do that. Um, there's no leader that would probably naturally give that. But I think it's one of your greatest moments of your whole oh. story is that you're so self-aware. And I think Heavenly Father may have guided you to make that decision because it was the only way you could make the church work long term. Yeah. And it's a credit to your sort of personality where you're able to live with the dissonance of not fully participating in the church, quote unquote, but doing it on your terms in a yeah. world that's sometimes very binary. You're either for us or you're against us. You're either all in or you're not in. And so there's so much content. <laughs> this source puts a binary all in, all out, that sometimes we ourselves think we have to all be in or all out. Any more thoughts on that for our listeners about this period of time when you just said, I'm going to do this my way? Yes. Um, I think it helped me specifically to think about, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm sick. And I wouldn't expect someone who was sick to go to the temple or even read their scriptures. So that took pressure off me. And I think that can help people who might be feeling the same way to, if they actually really finally believe that what they have is a disease and it needs some rest and it needs to be taken care of in a different way. Um, I also think and hope it helps people who might be struggling with their testimonies just in normal ways that it's okay to just hold on in whatever way you can. You don't have to abandon it. 
You don't have to walk away completely. It's not all or nothing. You can hold on to the pieces that you know and the pieces that are good and that you are able to live at the time until you're at a different point. I think that's terrific. And I love the way you connected that my mental health issues caused me to pull back from spiritual practices, but it wasn't because I didn't care about my spiritual health. Yeah. I was prioritizing my mental health, and, and that was the way forward. And that's really helpful. I think there are others, listeners or leaders. And then I think about our faith community. We, we had a long discussion when I served in my YSA assignment about, should we pass the sacrament to the people in the foyer? And we, yeah. we called them the foyer sitters. And I guess there's foyer sitters in most wards. And um, uh, we came to the conclusion we should pass the sacrament to the people in the foyer because we had no idea of the backstory of why they're in the foyer. We exactly. felt like Christ would go to the foyer and he would welcome love- them. And so I think sometimes if we see someone like Cassidy who's, you know, not attending the temple, I guess a local leader might know that or a family member or not reading your scriptures. I think before we just say, well, get with the program, Cassidy, and, you know, whatever, we should be cautious and do a lot of listening. And maybe it's not our job to even instruct Cassidy on her religious path forward, but do a lot of listening and supporting and create space for people like Cassie. I don't want to call you a four-year sitter, but the principle is the same. Yeah. Is people, for whatever reason or not, may not be participating in the church like we are or like we think others should. And one of the parts of grace is to give people space to do that. And if they feel that space, I think it helps them stay. If they don't feel that space or um, we talk about this a lot. We're called to be gatherers, the calling the gathering of Israel. So I think part of gathering of Israel is creating space because Cassidy's Israel for people like Cassidy who are doing this the very best way they can. And if we fully understood everybody's backstory, like we're hearing a little bit with Cassidy now, our hearts just grow and we just would reach out and love and support and, and um, get pretty tender hearted when we hear these stories. So, um, any thoughts on that, Cassidy? I just, it has really, going through what I've been through with mental health has really caused me to, I, my kids have struggled a lot with mental health and we've been through quite a lot with um, them. And all of these experiences have just made me realize that we don't understand most of what people are going through. We just, we don't, we only get, a the, you know, the top of the iceberg and, we, if we can just love and accept, just as you beautifully described, that we need to just realize that we don't know. We don't understand, and that's okay. We're not asked to all the time. We just need to love. Uh, listeners will link to the book that um, Cassidy referenced in the show notes, The Doubting Disease. So. If you want to read that book by Joseph, I can't read his last name on writing, but we will, I don't know. <laughs> we will have it in the show notes so you can check it out if you'd like to. That sounds like a book that was helpful for you. And um, one of the things that comes to my mind as you were doing this was boundaries, is the maturity to develop boundaries that work for you. And we kind of touched on this, but one of your boundaries, I think it was for 10 years, is that you didn't go to the temple. And you didn't read your scriptures regularly. And that's our natural, you know, my natural tendency as a local leader, as a YSA bishop, would to get all of my people to the temple. But I hope that if I were, you weren't a YSA at this point, but I guess my point is that I love that you had boundaries to know what was right for you. And I hope that those also honor your boundaries and just support you in your individual journey before um, and not getting prescriptive. You probably heard conference talks or local talks or Sunday school lessons that were triggering. But, and I think you had the boundaries and the self-confidence to just walk out if you needed to. And um, so those are tough years. But I, any more thoughts on those years of just, and maybe you still have those, these boundaries you've developed to make the church work on your terms long term? You know, it didn't feel like courage. It felt like survival. <laughs> it felt like 
the only way to not spiritually die. And um, it was all I could give. And that had to be enough or it was, I was going to walk away. You know, there, there was no other option, basically. And the fear had been so real that it was like, I can't go back to that. Um, it was so unhinging, as I mentioned, and terror-filled that I just, it was do this or do nothing because I can't, I can't live that same way. Um, and I feel like now I still, even just last general conference, just, you know, a couple of weeks ago there, I started to feel a little bit of the fear rise. I don't usually feel it very much anymore, but, um, sometimes, and I noticed it and I just said, okay, I'm going to walk out of the room. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, that doesn't apply to me is kind of how I sometimes think of it because my brain contorts it whatever message it is it might be perfect for someone else but for me my brain contorts what you're saying and and messes with the intent and so I know that and I know that I have this sort of disease and I have just learned how to deal with it and sort of distance myself from it just just disassociate I love your you've given yourself permission to do this your way I think that's a really good thing and a very important principle to share with others. Um, I I wonder sometimes, you know, sometimes in politics and religion, we have fear-based messages instead of factual-based messages. And I've listeners felt like a long time we can have a factual um, discussion about the last days, about different political parties, about um, yes. teachings outside or things outside of our religion and keep that on a factual basis. But the fear-based narrative um, can be very triggering and can lead to some of the things that perhaps came into your life. So I've always liked conference talks. I mean, Elder Uchtdorf, I think, is particularly good at this. He, He, like me, believes we're in the last days and we're getting one day closer to the coming of our Savior. But I don't always think that's a bad thing and that more bad things are going to happen. I look at times at things that are much better in the world than they were. I saw statistics of the number of casualties in war and how that significantly declined in my lifetime um, compared to earlier periods of time. So I don't, um, there are medicine and our ability to solve cancer. Um, There's a number of areas in our world that we're doing much better in than we were a hundred years ago. Absolutely, um, yeah. And there's areas where we're doing worse. And so, right. but I think one of the things I worry about those of us with, and I have a little OCD, that the fear-based message, the last days, things are getting worse, fire and brimstone, that can rally the troops and can sort of cause connection. But I worry, I worry that causes unneeded fear. And I felt a higher, holier law is love and just, fact-based discussion without the fear-based narratives to support it. I think the facts can support themselves. We don't need fear to sort of unify us um, because I think there's real negative consequences that can occur with fear-based narratives. Any more thoughts that come to your mind as we're kind of starting to wrap up? Um, Just that I've learned that fear comes from the adversary. I love that. And love and peace comes from God. So if you feel fear, the feelings that you're feeling, not necessarily what the message that was intended, but the feelings and whoever is talking to your brain at that time is not from God because God doesn't talk in fear. That's not how he communicates with us. Yeah, I really do agree with that. Um, I think as parents, we do best as parents when we don't communicate fear. We can still communicate um, the commandments and the consequence of commandments, but we can do that without fear. And I think it creates for a healthy relationship with kids. So I've always looked at my parenting style, whether it's good or bad. Sometimes it's not perfect. And think, you know, what would our heavenly parents do in the same situation? I don't know what they do, and I'm obviously not them, but 
I do love what you said. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I'm just deeply moved by your story. I'm I'm hoping that we can, you know, I think our listeners know that we had a son that left on his mission, and he was just in a great spot, and after a few months was in an incredibly dark spot and had no history of any of this. And we got lucky. We got a diagnosis, scrupulosity. Um, we got other, we got additionally lucky is that we found the therapist in that area knew a little bit about scrupulosity and his road to healing was remarkably quick. Um, I'm so that. But it was such a dark spot and we as parents had no idea what was going on. And so, you know, that's why I wish scrupulosity were part of mission prep. I wish we were part of young men's, young women's. I wish it were something that ward councils were discussing and had fifth Sundays on because there are, in every ward in our church, there are undiagnosed or um, people with scrupulosity youth that are thinking the same things you are, that God is mad at me, I've messed up, or I haven't messed up and he's still mad at me. Yeah. Um, and there's just such needless suffering. And it's usually, as other guests have taught me, scrupulosity attacks the things that are most important to you. It's the most committed the people that are trying to do the very best and stay with God and keep the commandments and do what's right, and it attacks that within them. So yeah. it's usually not the people that don't care about God or religion that are affected yeah. by scrupulosity. That's the the pain and the tragedy potentially of scrupulosity it attacks the things that's most important to you, which is often your faith and your desire to get back to God and feel like you're good enough. Yeah. So, listeners, we read this quote a lot in our podcast. It's the wounded healer. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led to the desert by someone who's never been there. And you're a wounded healer, Cassidy. Um, Thank you. you. It's not theoretical for you. You didn't go to a class and learn about depression and scrupulosity. And now can, from a theoretical standpoint, I don't want to criticize people that have, because you're very helpful too, but there's something about you walking this road that now with your children, you mentioned some of your kids are working through stuff, you, you get it, um, and it's not theoretical. And that's why, um, I don't know if that's why these sort of things come into people's lives so we can help others, but maybe there is a little bit of that. It gives us purpose in the difficult things we go through. And this is broader, obviously, than depression or OCD, but in some ways, we're all the wounded healers. We're all wounded. I agree with Terrell and Fiona Givens that mortality is incredibly wounding. Um, but part of the blessing of that is we can help others in their woundedness because we can authentically go there. But we have to embrace vulnerability, which Cassidy's doing. We have to embrace being open to new ideas that this isn't a spiritual weakness, but a mental health issue and normalize. You hope you felt with Cassidy's voice, she normalized mental health issues, just like she normalized getting the flu. Um, it's a brain disease. And just like the flu is not a brain disease. So I think if we can normalize that in our culture and um, sometimes here a testimony says with all things, Christ is possible, which is true. And so he can solve our anxiety. I get a little nervous about that because those that, I don't want to take away the idea that Christ can solve anything, but most of the time, um, a broken um, arm is not is solved by going to the doctor and getting the arm set. And right. depression and OCD is solved with mental health tools. And Christ has a role in both of those to heal and maybe point us in the direction to get the help we need. Um, but I think what you're helping us understand there's a difference between the two, and we need to normalize that. So I'll just turn it over to you for any last thoughts, if anything came into your mind, Cassidy. Um, I just think you've summed it up beautifully. And I truly, truly hope that I, I would have killed to have known of anyone going through this, to have had a lifeline in any sort of way. And so I'm hoping that's what I can be to somebody else. Um, and that hearing my story can give them the understanding, the awakening, the identifying to 
what is really going on so that they don't have to suffer the way I suffered and that they can get the help that they need. Well, Cassidy Lundgren, great job. Thank you for being on the podcast. I'm deeply moved by your story. So this is Cassidy Lundgren and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.